I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for February 2022. On retreat for the coldest parts of winter, I've been thinking a lot about direction and nourishment and feeling one's place in the world and change. I've been noticing how conflicted I often feel and wondering whether that tension is just something I'd better get used to. Multiple times a day, I'm with an obsessive yearning to pick a thing and go deep with it, but then the 10,000 things stay knocking at the door. Somewhere along the way, I learned not to turn them away, and as exciting as it is to make their acquaintance, it's also a bit overwhelming. I wonder constantly if I've given up depth for width, and if so, what are the consequences? I think about specialization and about academia, about peers and advisors, and I feel thrilled. But that excitement always comes with a haunting, too. Years of peripheral seeing gone screaming down the drain. A panoramic view hawked in exchange for a gilded microscope. In the moment that I'm writing this, I've decided to stay right here. Which is to say that right now, I'm choosing to live alone and play host to the constant flux of raucous visitors. Trauma theory, theology, ecology, phenomenology, and religion. I'm comprehending about one thousandth of what they're each saying, but choosing to believe there's still value in public reflection. For instance, through the ongoing internal procession of hens pecking hungrily at breadcrumbs, I came across Shelley Rambo's book Spirit and Trauma, A Theology of Remaining. First of all, I love this subtitle, A Theology of Remaining. I think it's gorgeous. If I read nothing else from her, I feel like that arrangement of words on their own are an irresistible summons. Shelley Rambo is a theologian at Boston University, and in this book she critiques the ways that the central story of Christianity, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, neglects the middle space between death and rebirth. For her, the experience of trauma, quote, reconfigures the relationship between death and life, end quote altogether so that the neat containers we have, this here is life, that there is death, are inadequate. She writes, death is not something concluded and life a fresh start and a new beginning. And that to see death and life as in contrast to one another is to fail to witness the experience of trauma. Rambo's questions about that space between which is held in the Christian story by the Saturday between Jesus' death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday led me to Pamela Coleman Smith's Ten of Swords, which I saw as an opening. I've written a bit before about how this card, which shows a human body face down on the earth with ten swords in the back and the sun setting in the distance, is not really an image of death in the sense that the 13th major arcana or the death card is. The latter shows death in action, and we know that by the fact that death is given a body and a horse to ride. In the Ten of Swords, on the other hand, it's pretty clear that the dying is done and there's nowhere to go just yet, if ever. And it's uncomfortable for me probably because I have no real story about what that period of time is about, or how to handle it. It's not easy to witness. I think because of the limited and extremely humbling experience I have doing clinical work as a graduate student, trauma always feels a bit beyond touching for me in my writing. Trauma is complex and mysterious, vast and diverse, and something I feel I know and understand very little about. I try to step lightly when I write or speak about trauma because it's so easy to trample and barge and get it wrong. I try to walk the line between not getting too caught up in the belief that things I write should or can't apply to everyone 
and never wanting to be hurtful or invalidating to the oceans of experience I'm not seeing. Interestingly, Shelley Rambo's book is kind of about this, which is maybe part of why it feels so important for me to be reading it. Because this foundational story of Christianity fails to truly witness the complex experience of life post-trauma, cultures and individuals who've been born and raised by this story may also struggle to do so. Reflecting on the early work of philosopher Jacques Derrida, Rambo writes that, Surviving is not a state in which one gets beyond death. Instead, death remains in the experience of survival, and life is reshaped in light of death, not in light of its finality, but its persistence. And so for Rambo, quote, to remain and to be one who remains is a central challenge in trauma. Witness, she writes, is an accompanying term to remaining. It describes a way of being oriented to what remains, to the suffering that does not go away. For me, this is sort of what it feels like to look at the Ten of Swords. Whatever it is that's being witnessed here exceeds and defies any possibility of a neat definition and requires remaining. Further, unlike in the story of Jesus, our bodies do not resurrect after trauma. Rather, we are tasked with the labor of remaining in them, moving forward while carrying and bearing the marks of those experiences all the days of our lives. Rambo further notes that the linear narrative of death, life, and resurrection fails to honor, quote, the experience of survival in which life is not experienced as new or as better. She continues, insofar as resurrection is proclaimed as life conquering, of life victorious over death, it does not speak to the realities of traumatic suffering. There is so much beauty in this book so far, and there are quite a few pages available to read on Google Books if you're interested. I'll conclude today's share with a set of questions Rambo poses that I also feel are a vibrational match with Ten of Swords. And these are quotes directly from the book. What does it mean that life is connected to an event of death? What does it mean to remain in the aftermath of that death? What form of life arises there, if any? Maybe because I'm reading Spirit and Trauma, I've also been thinking a bit about the way I often relate to memory like it were some kind of deep freezer, like a cryogenic container where bits of time go to live and remain there unchanged, which I don't think they do. But this way of relating to psychic life seems maybe an inheritance of rationalism. And I have a pretty limited philosophical knowledge base, but what I think this means is that it has roots in a belief that we can know all things objectively. When that belief is applied to our human experience, we start to speak about psychic things like memory, the unconscious, or intuition, as if they are objects, like pieces of Tupperware, containers where other objects live, fixed and relatively unchanged over time. Isn't it true, though, that psyche is living and breathing and moving and changing and foolish and brilliant and fickle and despairing and ecstatic, one at a time and all at once and in any given minute? It's a philosophical and psychological question and also a spiritual one. Aren't there things we just can't witness, name, or know? I'm also reading Phenomenology of Perception by French philosopher Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who was said to have spent his life asking the question, what is seeing? 
I'm bringing this up because I want to talk about intuition and seeing relates to intuition because the etymology of the word intuition comes from look at. Unlike rationalism, which takes intellectual logic and imposes it onto life, Merleau-Ponty wanted to, quote, begin anew from the brute experience to reinterrogate the moment that the thought about seeing destroys seeing, turns it into its object and simultaneously becomes lodged there. I feel like this latter part about turning what one sees into an object is kind of what we do when we later say, I ignored my intuition. It's like having a really compelling fantasy about a thing that doesn't line up with the reality and how the person or thing being witnessed in that process is objectified by it and doesn't get to be who or what they actually are. And how it gets increasingly difficult from there, for the one with the story, to see anything to the contrary. The thought destroys the seeing and gets stuck there. I think a classic and common example of this is falling in love with someone or something's potential. I've fallen in love with apparitions more times than I can count, and what I remember most about all of them is not the succulence of the fantasy, and there were definitely some juicy ones, but the very treacherous time I had making that rough trek back to the brute reality of what was actually there, and the reckoning required to free my body from the sandbar where living in a dream had marooned me over time. In hindsight, as one does, I'd look back and say, oh, I ignored my intuition, again, as if intuition were this omniscient force with all the answers, a Tupperware container with absolute truths tucked inside, and all you have to do is look. Seeing it this way is not realistic, which for me has meant it's not been useful. A couple weeks ago, I wrote a quick caption on High Priestess for social media, which said that the question of how to know intuition from anxiety is one that I think asks too much of intuition, as if its function is to make us all-knowing. I also asked, what if intuition is not a matter of absolute knowing, but instead of receptivity to the revelation of new moments? And I feel like Merleau-Ponty's ideas about the ability to begin anew could be deployed here. If intuition were processual, if it were about attuning to each moment and responding to that with a certain clarity of seeing, then it would be level to life, a thing to practice and to hold on to. So I've been curious about intuition. And there's another word I'm curious about too, which is intentionality. In my early days of reading tarot, I remember associating the magician with intention setting a lot when I'd give readings. For Maurice Merleau-Ponty, intentionality was not a mental process, where one takes out their sword and imposes a story upon the world, but rather a, quote, skillful bodily responsiveness and spontaneity in direct engagement with the world. I love this so much because it seems to say that instead of imposing some self-generated idea on the world, I get to start with what's here and see what in me rises to meet that. In this way, intentionality moves away from being this isolated and individual process and toward a way of knowing the world. And I think it would be easy to interpret this as a suggestion that we should be without visions or goals. And if it feels that way, I should say that I don't think that's a good suggestion, really. I also increasingly don't think making broad suggestions in a newsletter that goes out to thousands of people is a good idea either. But I do think the suggestion to let intention and vision emerge from imminence, from the fertility of immediate experience of what's actually happening, what's truly needed, and of what might be required to respond well to it, 
is at the very least worth thinking about. I was critical of rationalism in this offering because I think it's also worth asking about what we might miss when we relate to psychic experience as a series of objects, trauma, memory, the unconscious, and so on. But I want to also say that there are a lot of really useful practices that leverage a sense of objectivity in relation to internal life in order to cope with it. For example, mindfulness is often really helpful in regulating emotions and tolerating distress because it's a way of taking a detached, non-judgmental stance in relation to intense thoughts or feelings that you might mistake for facts and automatically act on. Another example that comes to mind is practices that make thoughts into arbitrary and significant things, like singing obsessive thoughts to the tune of the happy birthday song in order to take the charge out of them. I can't speak for anyone else, but... If getting through another 10 minutes without acting out a compulsion that I'm otherwise very clear I don't want to be doing is wrong, philosophically or otherwise, well, then I guess I don't want to be right. You're listening to The Monthly Offering for February 2022. I make these offerings weekly in both text and audio format for paid subscribers. If you're interested in signing up or upgrading your existing subscription, you can do so at the link in this post. Either way, thank you so much for being here. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro song is called Evaporate, and the outro is called Ping Pong. You can listen to both songs in full and more of Lee's work wherever you stream music. You can find him online at the links in this post. See you next time. So now we're gonna see, gonna see Clouds of disillusion be raining on me Same rain, turn me ice in my being Shall we mirror shoot and I'm reflection So now we're gonna see, gonna see